Okay, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much just for another day to be able to gather together like this as family and worship you by concentrating on your word and listening to your spirit. We thank you for all of our family members here at North Christian Church, including those that can't make it. Uh, we ask that you bless those who are sick and those who are struggling. You know their needs, Father, and we ask that you show them your mighty hand upon their lives. Father, most of all, we're grateful forever that you sent your son down out of heaven once for all to be judged in our place so that we don't have to worry about eternal judgment by having faith on him. You promised us his righteousness and even justified us forever and ever by your grace. Father, we ask your blessing be upon this uh, message tonight. Have your spirit guide us and teach us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay. Uh, raising the white flag. This was the uh, probably the second most taught lesson in India while we were there for two weeks. So I'm going to share this with you. And, and you can picture, if you will, um, the Bible students in India learning this. Uh, some of them pretty new to the Word of God. But... Um, our main concentration with them is teaching them about salvation issues mostly, things related to salvation and the gospel, so they're prepared to go out there and uh, properly and fully share the gospel to those who are lost. So we can never be enough prepared like with this stuff. Um, you know, the more, the more I study this stuff, the more I get to go through this, the more God brings things in, like I, I mentioned earlier in the announcements, just kind of brings more things in and puts more puzzles, to, puzzle pieces together, right? Big picture showing. So be excited for it because even if you think you know it, like God's, God's working on us all so that we understand this. Unless we fully understand this in our own souls and have the conviction about it, then we're not going to be able to portray it to people with, with the right heart and, um, you know, with conviction, which is what they need to see. So, raising the white flag. Um, if you missed Sunday's missionary report for Christ Saves Ministries, please take a listen to Sunday's message. Uh, and also, please share that with others that might, you know, be interested in missionary work or uh, that type of thing, reaching out to the lost. Uh, a lot of wonderful things that we're privileged to be a part of in India. And please continue to pray for all those things. Uh, we also talked about on Sunday that the Lord may be coming back soon for his bride. All the signs are showing that. Um, we don't know how soon. That's what we, none of us will ever know the day or the hour, according to scripture. But may we be found with our chins up, so to speak. And we get that from um, Luke 21, 28 on the board. When the Lord was talking about the signs of the times, he said, but when these things begin to take place, Straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, be ready, be alert. Don't be caught with your head down living for self and be surprised. Um, we, sh we shouldn't be surprised. We, we should be looking up, anticipating his appearance. So let's be waiting for him with our lamps lit and plenty of oil, to borrow from another parable. On Sunday, the point the Spirit was making regarding the visible results of saving faith was this. This is just kind of a summary point. Characteristics such as fear of God, obedience, righteousness, and love are products of genuine saving faith. It's seamless as from the same piece of cloth. It's a good way to look at it. Um, these things aren't supposed to be separate. They're not supposed to be divided up so much that we discount them from the life of a believer, you know. They, they, as we saw in many scriptures on Sunday, they accompany saving faith. And we might, might say this is what faith looks like, or this is what faith produces, because it's a perfect gift from God. What also came up on Sunday was our Lord's seamless garment, mentioned in John 19.23, and just how perfectly appropriate that is that the Lord's garment was seamless. 
a garment without any division or inconsistency in it. Jesus Christ, as we know, is the only perfectly seamless person who ever lived. His words and his actions were seamless always, without any contradiction whatsoever. I mean, even the quote-unquote best believer who tries to live this way can't do it perfectly just because we're in this flesh and we still carry around the flesh. But the Lord never had a discrepancy. John 19.23 mentions the garment. And it's a picture of his pure consistency. And so the message is the faith and the life Right, the faith of a believer and the life of a believer, they're supposed to be consistent as far as the new creature goes. That's how God designed it to be. And on the board regarding our Lord's seamlessness, His perfect person is a picture of the seamlessness of His salvation and sanctification as the Spirit's been showing us. Um, sanctification is like a living out of your saving faith. And God saves us daily. So there's no um, discrepancy with his gospel of salvation or the results that come from it. I think we know that by now with what we've been learning about sanctification. So as part of our Lord's warning in Matthew 7, that we would know them by their fruits... He was trying to make sure that we wouldn't be deceived by those around us that weren't really of us, as the Apostle John would say in 1 John 2. So just remember, too, that's kind of the context of that passage regarding the visible signs or results of saving faith. These are signs that even a child can recognize, and it's not supposed to be difficult to see. It's as simple as seeing good or bad fruit on a tree, as in Matthew 7. And, and God wants us to recognize those that might not be saved, that claim to be saved. Not for the purpose of judging them, hopefully for helping them, but also for not being um, taken in and deceived, either you know, knowingly or unknowingly. Something we didn't get to on Sunday is a stark truth, which includes for some people that go to church. If someone does not follow Jesus at all in their lives, they might not be one of his sheep, but instead a goat or a wolf in sheep's clothing. John 10, 27, you should know that verse pretty well. Uh, Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. But then we got Matthew 24, 11, and uh, 24, 24 through 25, and Matthew 25, 31 through 33. So let's start by turning in our Bibles to Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 25, 31. I mean, Holy Scripture is pretty clear about this point on the board. If, so, if someone does not follow Jesus at all in their lives, they might not be one of his sheep, but instead a goat or a wolf in sheep's clothing. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Uh, go to uh, Matthew 24, verse 11. Matthew 24, 11. Again, this is... Um, commenting on knowing them by their fruit so that we are not deceived. Matthew 24, 11, Jesus said, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And look at verse 24. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So Jesus is saying you, you will know them by their fruit. Pay attention, in other words. Not for the purpose of judging, but for discerning, you know, who is with the Lord and who's not with the Lord and being careful for deception. 
So we're not saying that a believer is going to live in perfection. Uh, we all sin as believers every day even. But there's a certain obedience that is sewn into the same fabric that comes from faith. They're, 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 like, they're like locked in. They're intermingled. They're woven together. Obedience and faith. And the reason all these things are true, the way God designed life itself, is because of the surrender that takes place in the heart of a believer. That's what this message tonight really is all about. And here's something on the board I'm going to share with you that the Spirit gave me kind of last minute. Um, I guess it was yesterday and this morning I was working on it. And I guess he wanted to kind of spell it out in this way. And this is also maybe a, a human way to, for us to give something order in our, our limited brains where this really probably all happens in a, in a second, really. So hopefully this is helpful for your own um, understanding, but also for maybe guiding others in what saving faith looks like. Saving faith includes surrender. When someone gets on his knees in his soul and willingly turns away from his own ideas about salvation, in particular his own righteousness, such as Luke 18, 9 through 14. He's repentant about his sin against God, Luke 13, 1 through 8, Acts 20, 21. And his, tar- his heart turns to Christ instead, Romans 10, 9 through 11. It's then the father runs to him, Luke 15, 20, that's the prodigal, the par- uh, prodigal son parable. And he's snatched from the fire, Zechariah 3, 2, Jude 23. And placed in union with Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He's been changed by the grace of God at that point. Miraculously. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So saving faith includes surrender. That's, that's what it looks like. That's what it, I don't hate to use the word feels like, but you know what I'm saying? It's not an academic thing. This is what it looks like when someone turns to Christ. Uh, so you're, you're familiar with some of these scriptures. For example, on Sunday we went to Luke 18 for the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The one who humbled himself before God went home justified. You should be familiar with Luke 13 that we've seen in the past where the Lord told the people unless they repent they will also perish. So we're not going to go to those right now. Turn to uh, Acts 20, verse 20. Acts 20, 20. Hopefully you remember this old friend. Which fits right in with, um, you know, a humble person being repentant about his sin against God. It's kind of like a sign. You know, he's ready, he's ready for a Savior. Acts 20, 20, and 21. Paul says how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this was Paul's habit. This is Paul's normal way of preaching the gospel to Jews and Greeks. This was typical. So you don't always see that in the actual different presentations of the gospel, which we're going to get to later on. But that was his normal way of doing it, because unless someone became repentant or was willing to repent, they weren't even going to look for a Savior. And one other old friend, go to Romans 10, verse 9. Romans 10, 9. And this is just to uh, emphasize the point that when somebody turns to Christ, it's done with the heart. That's the tool that God gave us to turn with. Romans 10.9 That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Again, with the heart, a person believes, resulting in what? Righteousness. Not his own righteousness, the righteousness of Christ granted to him. We're going to talk about that. So again, the point on the board, saving faith includes surrender. When someone gets on his knees in his soul and willingly turns away from his own ideas about salvation, for example, his own righteousness, he's repentant about his sin against God, and his heart turns to Christ instead. It's then the Father runs to him, and he's snatched from the fire and placed in union with Christ. He's been changed by the grace of God. So just a couple more of these scriptures regarding the change that God produces. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And the ones we're not getting to tonight, I hope you go home and enjoy it like a little search. Just look up all the passages and let the Spirit put the pieces together in your own soul. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He places us in union with Christ at the moment of faith in Christ. And look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Changed by the grace of God. It really is a miracle, isn't it? Who can change the heart of man? Only God. You can try all you want to convince people. It's so frustrating sometimes, right? But we're probably getting in the way too much if that's getting frustrating. But only God can change the heart of man. We have to rely on him to do it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So all this... Because a person finally decided, maybe after a lengthy time of seeking, to raise the white flag towards God. And this was another key theme the Spirit brought up in India, both at the Bible schools and at the nighttime crusades. He wanted people to know what true faith looks like and what conversion looks like. Again, it's called conversion for a reason not just trying to have Jesus on the side, on the board. There's a reason Jesus said a man must be born again to see the kingdom of God in John 3. To be able to live with God forever, he needs a totally new birth, not some type of addition to his current life. How else can a sinner possibly live with God in heaven? It's impossible because God hates sin, right? And, and how can he let a sinner into heaven or heaven won't be heaven anymore? So how can a sinner get to heaven unless God totally makes him brand new? And thus the need to be born again. And this is what we need to tell our Catholic friends. I mean, I grew up Catholic. I know many of you did too. Um, this is what they're stuck in. This is the big, big roadblock. In their soul. We need to have the courage to translate this, to bring this up, you know, to ask them, think about it, why did Jesus say you have to be born again? You might not like that phrase for whatever reason, like, you know, people you've met or churches you've seen that you think are not doing it right, but why did Jesus say, his words, you must be born again? And explain to them, How's a sinner going to go to heaven? He can't. So there's a whole conversion in view. There's no addition to the current life that's going to work to be saved. So regarding raising the white flag, what's a major difference between a believer and an unbeliever, even a churchgoer? It's the attitude of surrender due to an acceptance of one's need to be saved from sin. What's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, even a religious unbeliever that might even attend church to try to cover their butts or to give money to the church to try to absolve their sins? 
whatever works program they're on to try to earn their own salvation. What's the difference? Surrender of the heart to God. On the board, we know that from this principle, a repentant heart is what God is looking for all throughout Holy Scripture. He's waiting for a repentant heart from people. People try it their own way. They try their own righteousness. He's waiting for a repentant heart. Somebody to surrender, to give up. Psalm 51, 17, Isaiah 57, 15, and 66, 2. Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32, and 36, 26 through 27. Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 21, 32, Acts 2, 38, 3, 19, 17, 30, 20, 21, 26, 20. All these about repentance and the heart. Romans 2, 5, Romans 10, 9 through 10, Colossians 3, 22, and Hebrews 4, 12. So let's turn to just a few of these. Uh, you can, again, look these up in your own time and, and do your own study. Uh, go to Romans 2, verse 5. Romans 2, 5. The principle, you know, we're building towards raising the white flag. What does this mean? Or why, why can we say... A surrender is part of saving faith. Well, that's what faith looks like. Why can we say that? One reason is because a repentant heart is what God is looking for and waiting for. Romans 2.5. And this speaks of unbelievers, by the way. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. What's the problem? The root of the tree is the problem, right? Stubborn, unrepentant heart. It's because of that that your deeds aren't worthy because you're relying on your own deeds. So there's the big problem in the way, the stubborn, unrepentant heart. And just as the biological heart is at the core of man's body, the spiritual heart is at the core of man's soul. That's why this is the issue. The, the heart is the, the tool, I guess, I guess, again, we might say, in salvation that God has given us. The heart is the core of a man's soul. Is it a coincidence that the fleshly heart, the physical heart, is in the center of the human body? And God talks about the spiritual heart in the Bible as what he's looking at, what he, what he even judges by? Look on the board, Proverbs 23, 7 in the New King James. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Very simple. So again, a repentant heart is what God is looking for all throughout Holy Scripture. On the board, look at Ezekiel 18, 30-32 in the NIV. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. What is God waiting for? A repentant heart. A willingness to turn away from your offenses or your own ways. So the root of the problem for an unbeliever is an unrepentant heart. A willingness to turn away from self and sin. See, again, back to that word willingness. God empowers, right? God empowers everything. He's waiting for the willing person, the humble person. And again, we're talking supernatural spiritual things here. We're trying to explain it or even put it in order so we can understand it. But that's all God's waiting for. And he takes over. With the prodigal son, when the father ran to the prodigal son, when was that? Once the son turned around and started heading back. God's waiting for a repentant heart. And then he runs and takes care of everything. But that's why this is such a big problem. In salvation. That's why this is like the obstacle, the unrepentant heart. 
I'm okay, I'm, I'm good enough on my own. Uh, you know, maybe there's really not a God. Um, who knows, right? All the rationalizations come in. Relying on one's own righteousness. We know one can only be saved by grace, and God only gives grace to the humble. So an attitude of humble repentance is needed for one to come to saving faith in Christ. Now, some people are already humble. We're going to get to this. In other words, some people are already repentant for whatever reason. They finally hit rock bottom. They've come to, come to the end of their rope, and they're, they're ready for Christ. Okay, so you don't have to go around telling everybody to repent if they're already humble. But then there's the other side of the coin, right? The ones who you know just aren't humble, that even maybe make fun of you or make fun of the Lord. Um, they're the ones that might need to be told, you need to change your mind. That's repentance, really, right? Change your mind. You need to turn around because you're living in deception. But follow the Spirit on that one. An attitude of humble repentance is needed for one to come to saving faith in Christ. To even truly know he needs Christ in the first place so that he can receive the grace of God for salvation. Unless a person is repentant about his sinfulness and guilt before God, he will not turn to Christ to save his life. Why would he? This is what we talked about in the Bible schools in India. Why would a person turn to Christ? I mean, you know what I mean, really turn to Christ? Not just believe in him just in case, not just have him as another God. Why would a person turn to Christ and say, I need you, save me? Unless they realize they have a big problem with sin and unrighteousness before God. So we've seen this uh, from the pulpit. Even in the recent past, God rescues those with broken, contrite hearts. The humble will receive his grace. Psalm 51, 17, Isaiah 57, 15. We're not going to go there because we've been there before uh, with this principle. So we're just padding this topic, raising the white flag. And we also know this principle well from the past. God looks at the heart when evaluating man. Isaiah 16, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel Looks like Isaiah. 1 Samuel 16, 7, Matthew 15, 8, and Acts 15, 8. We know that, right? We don't have to go to those verses again. You've been well taught. God looks at the heart when evaluating man. So unless a man finally buckles under the weight of his depravity and realizes his guilt before God, he's not going to turn to Christ from the heart. He's not going to surrender. He's not going to believe the biblical way of believing is, which in the Greek, it means to have faith or entrust. It means to place your trust in someone. Go to Romans 10.3. Romans 10.3. Again, on the board... A repentant heart is what God is looking for all throughout Holy Scripture. Romans 10.3 For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. There's the problem again, an unrepentant heart. I'm good enough on my own. They did not subject themselves. There's a surrender. That's the problem. Unwillingness to su surrender, submit, subject yourself to God's righteousness. Knowing that He has to do it for you. You can't do it yourself. So this is a constant choice that we're going to see tonight in salvation. There's trusting in your own righteousness or trusting in Christ's righteousness. And there's not the option to choose both. You know what I mean? There's not because if you if you choose both, you're not trusting in Christ's righteousness. Does that make sense? Are you really trusting in Christ to save you if you're still trusting in yourself to save yourself? It's one or the other. It's an instead issue. 
Um, go to Hebrews 4.12. We're not going to go to all the scriptures on the board, but just a couple to uh, pad this idea. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mean, that should give what we talked about Sunday, proper fear of God to everybody. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thank God he's a God of grace and mercy, huh? And he's just waiting for you to surrender. In verse 13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And go to Colossians 3, 22. Colossians 3, 22. This is an interesting verse, especially in light of our message on Sunday. How uh, fear of the Lord accompanies saving faith. And God is looking for the heart. Colossians 3.22 Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That's not just believing someone existed, you know. Not just believing the facts alone about Jesus Christ. With sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. What's God waiting for? A repentant heart. So, regarding this subject, raising the white flag, we have at least three examples in Holy Scripture of men coming to salvation who illustrated this idea of surrender to God, uh, a surrender of the heart, if you will. At least three men that illustrated this. Zacchaeus, we went talked about him on Sunday. <coughs> the thief on the cross. And the Roman jailer. And we're going to go to them again because of the attitude of repentance that they show. Um, the heart, the changed heart, the willingness. The repentant heart that accompanied their faith in Christ. And that's when they receive righteousness from God as Romans chapters 4 and 5 tell us. So before we get there on the board, well, there's your th our three examples there. This may be why these men weren't directly told to repent, where at other times the command to repent accompanied the gospel presentation. It's a fair question to ask, right? Why sometimes is repentance, you know, verbalized to people? in the gospel presentation? Why did Paul habitually in Acts 20, 21, habitually preach repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ? But then sometimes people are just told to believe or have faith to be saved, as throughout the gospel of John. So what gives, right? Why is this true? Why weren't these three men told to repent? Well, I think the answer is in the fact that they were already repentant. Their hearts were already softened for whatever reason, and they were ready for the Savior. So let's turn to our first passage in Luke 19, verse 1. Luke 19, 1. Our first example is Zacchaeus. Michael's new favorite Bible character. Kind of a joke from the trip in India. Um, Zacchaeus came up in almost every lesson that came forward because of the great example of his repentant heart here, right? So Michael started you know, teasing me, why are you, why are you favor favoring Zacchaeus? I don't know. What could it be? Look at Luke 19.1. He entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. 
Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday. Zacchaeus' actions revealed his humble, repentant heart. And the Lord was quick to acknowledge it. But let's be clear, Zacchaeus wasn't saved by his actions, was he? Of course not. He was saved by trusting in the Lord Jesus as his Savior. Faith alone in Christ alone saves a man. His actions were simply the evidence of his faith. The evidence of a repentant heart, we might also say. Two sides of the same coin. Once again, Jesus had gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, in verse 7. Amen to that. And why? Why did the Lord habitually dine with sinners? What was his purpose? What was his objective? Let's see that one more time in Luke 5.30. Go to Luke 5.30. Why did the Lord habitually dine with, quote-unquote, sinners? What was his, you know, purpose or, or end goal? Obviously, it was to save them, but let's read a little bit more. Luke 5.30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In his loving way, as only Jesus could do it, he was trying to lead them to repentance, to a change of mind, to turn around from their own ways, turn away from self, turn to him as the Savior. So again, on the board, we have at least three examples in Holy Scripture of men coming to salvation who raised or illustrated the raising of the white flag before God or a surrender of their heart to the Lord. We just saw Zacchaeus. Let's take a look at the thief on the cross. I'll go to Luke 23, 39. I was amazed at how many of these passages are in the Gospel of Luke tonight, all surrounding this topic. The thief on the cross is a second example of a man who already had a repentant heart and therefore ripe soil to receive the Lord as Savior by faith. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So notice fear God comes into play. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Hope you see there a repentant heart. He was, you know, admitting his problem. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. So we see the thief was on his knees in his heart. He was humble. He was repentant, ready to receive our Lord as Savior. And when he expressed that humble faith to the Lord, right, the Lord ran and grabbed him. 
I'll see you in paradise. And let's look at a third passage about this idea of, of a surrendered heart. Go to uh, Acts 16.25. The Roman jailer. Again, just keep in mind, maybe this is why these men weren't told to repent by anybody. They were basically just told to have faith in the Lord. Acts 16, 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Do you think maybe he's humble? He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So here again, it's pretty obvious we have a tender heart, ripe soil, someone who is not no longer overconfident in themselves, that's for sure, but instead trembling with fear. So he was just told, trust in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. His heart had lost all hope, which was a very good thing, allowing him to truly turn to Christ for salvation. So on the board, unless one humbles himself before God Almighty, he will not be able to receive the gift of saving faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and he will not be granted repentance either. Acts 5, 31, 11, 18, 16, 14, 2 Timothy 2, 25 through 26. Uh, we're kind of familiar with these passages from the last few years, hopefully. Let's just see a couple of them. Go to Acts eleven eighteen. God gives grace to the humble, right? It's so simple. Both at salvation and throughout our walk. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life, eternal life in view. God grants repentance. It's a gift. And God's grace gifts only go to the humble. And look at Acts 16, 14. Acts 16, 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord is the one that supernaturally does this thing. And again, repentance is also a gift granted by God to the humble, is the point. As our dear Pastor Collins has said in the past, man gets to choose between a platter of arrogance and a platter of humility. I love that visual aid. Man gets to choose between a platter of arrogance and a platter of humility. Here's a little further explanation of that. God gives men a certain number of opportunities in their lifetimes to push away the plate of arrogance and eat some humble pie before him. And when man does so, that frees the grace of God to bless man with saving faith in his son. Humility. It's evident in true saving faith. There's no religious lip service allowed. There's no um, pretending 
with God. Saving faith is not a person believing in Jesus just in case or accepting him on the side. And see, this is a big problem in India with the Hindus. It's also a big problem with religion in general, with our Catholic friends who might have him on the side but are trusting in their own goodness for salvation. Or the Hindus, they're happy to have Jesus. They, they, they love Jesus. They believe in him. If you ask a Hindu, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, absolutely. He's a wonderful God of our 300 million. So is that salvation? Someone has to um, admit their own inadequacy, their own inability to save themselves, and humble themselves before the Lord. So it's all attitude. This came up on Sunday too, and, and for me it's an attitude of the heart that God is after, not just a mental assent, not just the facts, not just knowledge. It's an attitude of the heart God is waiting for. God is waiting for a repentant heart. Whether someone has to be told that or someone just comes to that place because of life itself, finally bringing them down, and you might be there to give them the solution, to talk about the Lord and trusting in Him. On the board, saving faith is a willingness to drop one's own life. For example, one's self-righteousness and instead reach out to Christ. Instead. Acts 26, 18 through 20. Go there, please. Acts 26, 18. Again, saving faith is a willingness to drop one's own life, including his self-righteousness and instead reach out to Christ. Look at what the Lord himself instructed Paul. Uh, we'll start in verse 16. This is Jesus talking to Paul. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Too many churches today teach a watered-down gospel, almost making light of trusting in Christ, as though it's not a real decision. Just looking at this passage, it's turning from darkness to light. It's repenting and turning to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Why, did, why does Paul say that? In other words, is your faith genuine or are you playing a game, right? The whole deeds being the proof of repentance. What do you think the Lord meant when he stated the following? In Matthew thirteen forty four, go there, please. Matthew thirteen forty four. Again, we're talking about conversion, right? We're talking about being born again. What does that look like? It, is is that just a mental assent? Because if it is, there's no fruit with a mental assent. There's no um, there's no need for proof of faith with a mental assent. But the Bible says there's a certain fruit that appears that accompanies saving faith that makes it um, obviously genuine to us. So, for example, look at Matthew 13, 44. This kind of reminds me of Zacchaeus' reaction to the Lord. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. 
and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Does that look like an uh, indifferent attitude or a mental ascent? Or is this someone that realizes what he's found and everything else pales in comparison? He's willing to turn from his own life and the garbage that that was, as Paul would say, to true life. Again, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Sounds like conversion to me. Sounds like being born again, like a totally new life that I want instead of my old life. Sounds like a turning away from the old life and a turning to new life in Christ instead. So on the board, saving faith includes surrender. This is the attitude of the heart of those who recognize and receive the offer of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, of those who receive or take hold of Christ in John 1, 12. It's an attitude of the heart. What's the big stumbling block? A stubborn, unrepentant heart in Romans 2. Many churchgoers today think they are in with God based on their own goodness, based on maybe their own spiritual heritage, being born into a certain church or even a Christian family. So they think they're in with God because their grandmother was close to God. That's not the attitude of the heart of a believer. That's a lie. Uh, go to John 1.12. And this is what we've got to tell people about. It's part of the Great Commission, especially in this area. The pull of religion is so strong to rely on self for salvation that there's a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus, but they really believe in themselves as far as salvation is concerned. John 1.12. But as many as received him, and that, that Greek word for received is lambano. It means to take hold of. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born again. Those who received him. A personal surrender to Christ alone is the earmark of saving faith. To Christ alone. Again, this is the catch with religion. When people are trapped in religion, uh, it's a very subtle deception they could be under. This involves a willingness to sell all, to sell one's own life even, in exchange for the Lord and his righteousness. Again, the key word is willingness. That's the attitude of the heart that we just saw in Matthew 13. Think of the Lord's response to the rich young ruler as we begin to close tonight. Think of the Lord's response to the rich young ruler. He asked how to inherit eternal life. Now, isn't the correct biblical answer to believe in Christ? To trust in Christ and you'll be saved? But the Lord told him to sell everything and follow him in Luke 18. If your local evangelist said that to someone today, many Christians would lash out at him. If we're saved by grace through faith, which we are, then why say that to someone? Why did the Lord say that to him? This is just another illustration from our Lord's own mouth that believing in him is not a superficial decision or one that involves lip service without a surrender to him. It involves a willingness to turn from self and turn to him. Instead, think about Isaiah uh, talking about the religious people. They used the name of the Lord on their lips and they weren't saved. They use the name of the Lord on their lips. The same type of people our Lord mentioned in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. 
Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he said, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Right? True faith, faith that saves, comes from the heart, where one has counted the cost. It's a real decision, in other words, to entrust the Lord with your very life, to face that fact that you're under judgment and you need him to be saved. So on the board regarding biblical salvation, saving faith is the heart, raising the white flag and surrender to Jesus Christ as his God and Savior. And one must accept the king's righteousness alone as the way to be saved. This is the principle we're going to close with tonight. Isaiah 61.10, Matthew 22.14, Acts 16.31, Romans 3.21-26, 10 verse 3, and Philippians 3, 8, and 9. We're not going to get to all these. I hope you go home and look them all up for yourself. The issue is clearly turning from one's own self-righteousness and accepting God's offer of perfect righteousness in Jesus Christ alone. Remember one of the Lord's parables in Matthew 22, where the king asked one who came to his banquet. Do you remember this on the board? Matthew 22, 14. Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The king invited everyone to the feast. Get them from the roadsides. Get them from everywhere. Bring them in. I want to save everybody. And then this one person came in without the wedding clothes that the king offered. Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? In the parable, the man had no answer at all a picture of how speechless unbelievers will be when they face the Lord one day. And then the king proceeded to cast him into eternal judgment for having the wrong clothes on. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of one who tries to go to God with his own righteousness, not submitting to God's righteousness. This is huge, everybody. This is really what it's all about when you're faced with religion versus Christianity when you're faced with people that are stuck in religion, even that use Christ's name, versus those that are saved and that are free from the grace of God. People try to go to God with their own righteousness instead of submitting to His righteousness. Romans 10.3 we saw, Philippians 3.8-9 is the same thing. Arrogantly, people are ashamed to admit their own spiritual poverty. And they refuse the better garment the king graciously offers them. They refuse the perfect garment the king graciously offers them. It's super sad, really. Um, this is akin, like this passage of the parable in Matthew twenty-two fourteen. How did you come in here, you know, without wedding clothes? Didn't you take the garments I offered you? Look on the board, Isaiah 61, 10a. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. That's the only way anyone is getting into heaven. A robe of righteousness from God himself. Christ's robe of righteousness. But you refuse that robe? God has no choice but to honor your free will. Say, okay, depart from me. I never knew you. He literally invites everyone in from the roadsides, the worst of the worst, the poorest of the poorest, etc., etc. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, right? And then somebody says, I have my own garment, thank you. Look at my own righteousness. And when they see God face to face, they are going to be speechless. Unless we tell them. We have a chance right now to participate in the gospel. Paul used that term a lot. Participate in the gospel. We all have a chance to do that in many different ways. Let's tell people about the robe of righteousness they need, contrary to their own supposed righteousness. You can't turn down the grace of the king and expect to be with the king. So I hope that makes sense. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much. 
Your word is wonderful and we thank you for weaving everything together for us, teaching us by your spirit. Help us to continue to be humble before you and to share the good news with people and have the faith to do so. Father, we know you'll give us the words at the proper time with the proper people. Help us have more and more of a heart for the lost and help us bring your righteousness to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.